Yes, for one magical vote a year, senators leave the mortal world behind and enter an enchanted land of reconciliation. Come with me and you'll be in a world of reconciliation. It's our sole remedy, except for pure intoxication. I hear you. I hear you, buddy. Right there with you. Got a drink, Dad? <laughs> I could use one. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., also in Red Bluff and Redding, California, on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW, Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe on the internets every day on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com thank you very much for joining us today you know uh oh hey hey here's some good news des what's that it's international podcast day (laughs) oh really yeah is it me or does international podcast day come earlier and earlier (laughs) every year i had never even heard about it actually until my mother mentioned it to me around here Every day is International <laughs> Podcast Day, I'm afraid. Anyway, welcome to the Bradcast. Uh, I know things were supposed to get easier once the former guy was out of office. <laughs> they ain't getting much easier. Uh, we will no. get to the uh, current, uh, quickly moving state of, um, well, it's not really sausage making at this point. It's more like log jamming, mm. I think, is a better yeah, word Yeah, it's a for much it. better metaphor, yes. Yeah, that's going on in D.C. Uh, we'll get to that momentarily. But I've been trying to get to this email for a few days uh, from a listener in response to my conversation last week with Dr. Peter Kalmus of NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, who essentially, uh, Dr. Kalmus, is warning that current efforts and plans by the U.S., and indeed the world, are not nearly enough to stave off the catastrophic effects of our climate change emergency and that the impacts are now coming much faster than most scientists had predicted for years. Is that a fair description? Yes, that is. Now, uh, and by the way, 
even though we're talking about this, it does underscore what we will be talking about as far as what's going on in D.C. But uh, Dr. Kalmus, uh, his outlook based on what he says he sees firsthand as a NASA climate scientist who studies our rapidly changing Earth, uh, his views are somewhat more radical. And I don't mean that in a negative sense and alarmist. And I don't mean that in a negative sense uh, either. Uh, but it's it's more so more urgent, I guess, is a good way to put it, than than many of the other climate scientists that we have spoken to on this program over the years, like Penn State's Dr. Michael Mann or UC Santa Barbara's Dr. Leah Stokes. In short, Kalmus says we need to do much more and we need to do it much faster than many others in the climate community are currently advocating for. So, again, is that a fair assessment, Desi Doyen? Yeah, I would say so. It's basically a difference in rhetoric. His rhetoric says we got to get going and we got to get going a lot faster than pretty much all of the other climate science, not all of the other, but many of the other climate scientists are now urging. Yeah, they're basically saying, look, let's focus on what we can get done. And as soon as we can get this done, the better. So we spoke with uh, Peter Kalmus last week. You can download it, of course, for free at bradblog.com. Thanks to those of you who donate at bradblog.com slash donate. But it's free for everyone. Anyway, uh, so I've been trying to get to this email from RC since we uh, spoke last week with Dr. Kalmus. R.C. writes a subject line, Americans refuse to ante up. Brad, I've always appreciated your positions as a blogger, and I think your post about Dr. Kalmus is the most important and needs follow-up. Now, great, like I don't have enough to do at this (laughs) point. He writes, nobody ever points out just how out of touch the U.S. and the E.U. are with the rest of the world as far as energy use and CO2 emissions. The U.S. uses three times and the E.U. two times the global average per capita energy. Not only that, but a large part of China's energy is used to supplement the industrial world's energy usage, which I think is true. Much of the dirty manufacturing that they do over there, for example, for our consumption, uh, you know, is is for us. It's China doing it. But it's stuff that they are selling to us. Right. We've exported our emissions to China when it comes to things like manufacturing. RC goes on to say, my point being that people need to make need to be made aware of this. Why is the U.S. and EU afforded the right to use energy multiples of the rest of the world and only be asked to cut back to a level well in excess of the rest of the world? So is that is that what we're doing with the Paris Climate Treaty? I, I think it is. If everyone, for example, cuts their dirty energy usage, if everyone in the world cuts it in half, for example, the U.S. and the EU would still be using more per capita than the rest of the world. This is true. But also when we're talking about the idea of, say, cutting energy use in half Mm -hmm. um, since the United States and the European Union, we have built our economies a certain using a certain amount of energy. Uh Just slashing it in half could lead to societal collapse. And that's a problem. (laughs) Well, so, yeah, the idea of a goal is is a good idea. But as far as how you get there, each country and the U.N. covers this. Each country has specific differentiated responsibilities. And that's what the 
Paris Agreement tries to hammer out. Fair enough. I think the the point that he's trying to make here and that I was uh, clumsily trying to make is that uh, when we're talking about scaling back, even scaling back, the U.S. is going to be using more than the rest of the world when they're asked to similarly scale back. Right. There's a thing called a carbon budget, how much carbon we can safely emit as a human society globally. And that is what the Paris Agreement negotiations going into November at COP26 in Glasgow, Scotland. That's what that's going to be about. How much is the carbon budget that still remains? And how do we parcel out the prioritized uses? Who gets to emit more and who has to move faster? And And obviously the U.S. as the world's greatest historical emitter is the primary one responsible for most of the carbon in the air today. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, Kalma says we have already used our budget. Well, yeah, that's debatable. That's debatable. But yes, it depends on how you slice and dice it. Right. All of this is debatable. And that's why I wanted to sort of bring this up. That's why I wanted to have Kalmas on. That's why I wanted to share this email. RC goes on uh, to cite an, uh, an article on cultured meat at thecounter.org that lays out the problem with our solutions to noted problems, he says, such as significant uh, the, the significant contributor of livestock production to our total greenhouse gas emissions. Mm-hmm. The biggest problem, he says, being the ultimate failure to address the problem of resource limits, which would be easier, he says, limiting our meat intake or trying which, he asks, would be easier, limiting our meat intake or trying to create an artificial way to have our meat and eat it too. Lab-grown meat, he notes, is supposed to be inevitable. The science on that, uh, according to RC, tells a different story, though it's one uh, I should note that I don't have time to tell at the moment. Please forgive (laughs) me for that, but we will mark it down as a broadcast for the future. RC goes on to write, We cannot see our way clear to change our behavior but would rather try to find a way to keep living our current life, even if it is unrealistic and impossible. Just maybe it would be better to point out this fallacy that continue to tell people that they can buy a Tesla and eat fake meat and cultured meat to solve our problems. Biomass is still burning stuff and cars still need an incredible amount of materials, whether powered by gas or electricity. Um, He concludes rant off (laughs) you are the only person i know that would consider bringing this up so i leave it in your hands great stop letting the developed world off the hook for climate change sincerely rc fair enough and uh, thanks for the note rc and while i can't do everything at once uh, i can't even do one thing at once to be frank uh, I mostly I, I just wanted to let you share your thoughts with listeners, because all of this is an important discussion that does not get nearly enough airtime in the corporate media. It doesn't get any airtime in the corporate media. I mean, that discussion is only now just barely moving from, you know, climate change is a hoax. Let's discuss to, uh, you Biden know, wants to steal your hamburgers. There you go. This is where we are right now kind as of, a culture. Yeah. So these kinds of conversations need to surface, and we're trying to surface them now, trying to help people understand what all the parameters are of what we are dealing with and what we are facing and the gravity of the situation. The gravity that is not covered really at all in the corporate media, as uh, dire as things really are, and the need to move quickly, to get off of fossil fuels, 
uh, on a timeline that is anywhere near quick enough to respond to the problems that we are currently facing. And even that, as we learn again from West Virginia's Senator Joe Manchin today, even that discussion of how quick we are or aren't going to move off fossil fuels, even that discussion is still nowhere near the realm of reality in which we should be discussing this problem, at least according to my conversations, even with the more conservative uh, climate scientists, much less uh, Dr. Kalmus. So uh, anyway, more along related lines momentarily and, of course, in our upcoming Green News report later this hour. Yeah, and I just want to point out that the differences in re rhetoric between Dr. Kalmus or Dr. Mann or Dr. Stokes or any of the others is mainly because there is a uh, there is a body of evidence that says that if you talk about the extremes of what we are facing, that that can in a fashion, create a sense of doom among people that then enervates them and makes them not to want to do anything, makes them want to give up. So doomism, it is doomism, yes. Yeah. So it's a it's a serious. There's nothing we can do. It's all we're all screwed. So right. why do anything at all? And that's not the case. There's plenty that we can do. So that is the difference in the rhetoric that explains why some some climate scientists are going in one direction with how they talk about it, and others like Dr. Kalmus are going further and saying, "Hey, listen, it really is worse. We need to focus." on that. And, you know, it's a different way. There's a number of ways you can go around talking about this stuff. We will go about talking about them in all ways, <laughs> I suspect, uh, in the days ahead. But as we have been discussing now for weeks, if not months at this point, there are currently <clears throat> four critical legislative actions we've been telling you about uh, over the past week, certainly, that need to happen in Congress pretty much right now, all coming due largely at once. Uh, I do know that we warned you several months ago that Democrats were going to have to sort of walk through a minefield when they returned after their summer recess. Well, welcome to the minefield. As the legislation uh, session, you know, begins with nothing less than the entirety of Joe Biden's presidential agenda and the success or failure of the Democratic majorities, slim Democratic majorities right now in the House and Senate at stake, Along with, oh, yeah, the need to prevent Republicans from shutting down the entire government and from taking the entire global economy down with them by blocking an increase to the nation's dumb debt ceiling law and and face a default on the good faith and credit of the U.S. government. And, yes, the almighty dollar uh, that would be for the very first time in American history. If that happens, and if it does, it will cause a fiscal calamity, as everyone, even the Republicans, currently filibustering the suspension of the debt, uh, debt ceiling, even they know that very well. They just don't care. Because chaos and calamity is now very on-brand for today's GOP. Chaos and calamity is the only agenda, frankly, that they have left at this point along with trying to steal elections. But uh, since all of this is a such a moving target at this hour in D.C. and frankly, B, so nightmarish overall, maybe it's best to kick it off uh, 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 with a bit more st of Stephen Colbert's monologue last night because it was A, much funnier than I am, and <laughs> B, it was a pretty decent explanation of where things were at least late on Wednesday during The Late Show, even if we've got a few updates for you today. Reconciliation. 
It's a phantasmagorical place of legislative wonder where anything can happen. Who knows? Maybe even something. That's exactly what Mitch McConnell's afraid of. So he's trying to harsh the Democrats' reconciliation buzz by making them add the debt ceiling increase to the Build Back Better bill. But Schumer's not buying it, telling reporters that Democrats cannot and will not raise the debt ceiling through reconciliation. McConnell and Schumer are in a staring contest that's also a high-stakes game of chicken in that they both look like raw poultry. Now, even if the Democrats were willing to use reconciliation, it wouldn't be easy. They'd have to essentially pass four bills simultaneously. One to fund the government, one to raise the debt ceiling, one for the Build Back Better bill, and the infrastructure bill. And that last one might be the most important because if the first three don't pass, we'll all need bridges to live under. <laughs> and here's the problem. In order to pass the bill through reconciliation, all 50 Senate Democrats have to be on board. But Manchin and Cinema have both said that there are parts of the $3.5 trillion bill that they oppose. But they have yet to publicly detail their demands. So they're holding up the entire government, but they won't tell anyone what they want. That's like getting a ransom note that says, your brother gets it unless you give us, wouldn't you like to know? <laughs> so, over the past few weeks, the White House has tried to figure out just what they want. Or as Politico put it, they've been trying to Unlock the Manchinima puzzle. Manchinima? Really? That sounds like half man, half enema. And if you're just slapping their names together, come on. Cinnamon was right there. <laughs> yes. Yes, it was. So uh, that gives you an idea where we are. And of those four key legislative imperatives for Democrats, one of them... Happy to say, can now be checked off of the list as of Thursday, at least for now, for a couple of months anyway, at best. Congress took a step for, uh, toward avoiding a partial federal shutdown on Thursday when the Senate passed a bill to keep the government funded through December 3. The mm -hmm. House followed uh, shortly thereafter, and President Biden is now expected to sign that bill. The uh, votes will help avert one crisis, but only delay another as the pol political parties dig in on a dispute over how to raise the government's borrowing cap before the U.S. risks a potentially catastrophic default. The Senate improved the short-term funding bill by a 65 to 35 vote after Democrats removed the provision to suspend the debt ceiling, which gives the government permission to borrow the money needed to pay for the stuff that Congress has already promised to spend, such as the $8 trillion in debt that was racked up by Republicans and Democrats alike while, Don while Donald Trump was in the White House. So, yes, now that Congress has authorized all of that spending and, by the way, those huge tax cuts for millionaires and billionaires, all of that needs to be paid for, which requires lifting the debt limit that Republicans are still filibustering so that the U.S. can borrow the money needed to pay its bills. But... The work to keep the government open and running served as the backdrop during a chaotic day for Democrats on Thursday as they struggled to get President Biden's top domestic priorities over the finish line, including the bipartisan $1.5 trillion infrastructure bill, 
which is at risk of stalling in the U.S. House because, as all Democrats in both chambers had previously agreed, until so-called Democratic moderates, a few of them reneged, that small infrastructure bill would only be passed at the same time as the larger Build Back Better bill. That which comprises the bulk of President Biden's agenda, including the expansion of health care and education and parental leave and child tax credits. And yes, the first real effort to tackle climate change, all of which is wildly popular with the American people. Yes, even in Joe Manchin's home state of West Virginia. With their energy focused on Biden's agenda, Democrats backed down from a showdown over the debt limit in the government funding bill for the moment, deciding to uncouple the borrowing ceiling at the insistence of Republicans uh, who got in return mm, nothing. Anyway, if that cap is uh, not raised by October 18, the U.S. will face a financial crisis and immediate economic recession, according to Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, uh, who spoke with lawmakers this week, one that, in fact, could come well before the October 18 date. As the markets get jittery, the closer the uh, to the deadline to when the U.S. runs out of money. Uh, and as credit agencies start marking down U.S. credit as less reliable than it used to be before the Republicans began using it for this sort of brinksmanship. But the most immediate priority facing Congress was keeping the government running once the current budget year ends at midnight on Thursday. And that is now finally all but done, at least for two months when we are going to do this part of it all over again. Groundhog Day. The short-term spending legislation will also provide, uh, the one that was uh, passed on Thursday, will also provide about $28.6 billion in disaster relief, which Republicans had also been blocking by blocking that bill uh, for those recovering from Hurricane Ida and many of our other recent costly climate change-fueled disasters. And they were also blocking help uh, for support for Afghanistan evacuees from the uh, 20 year war between the U.S. and the Taliban, which Republicans have spent the last several weeks pretending to care about, even while they blocked funding for those same evacuees until receiving a political concession on Thursday. But, you know, just to put this in perspective, that. Uh, um, the money that they were talking about that they were blocking for disaster relief for Hurricane Ida and just some of the other recent natural disasters that we've had, uh, $28.6 billion. Well, this $3.5 trillion Build Back Better bill that they're talking about, that's for 10 years. And it's a huge program that uh, funds all sorts of things for really every American now, $3.5 trillion sounds like a lot, but when it's spent over 10 years, it's actually $350 billion per year. Well, you know, this little short-term spending bill for the next two months that included disaster relief, the disaster relief itself for just disasters within the past month or two is almost $30 billion dollars. 
So I don't know. If we're only talking about spending $350 billion a year, it does not sound to me like this is such a huge, expansive bill as folks like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema are currently painting it. Yeah, I mean, the defense budget this year, I think, is something like $740 billion, and over 10 years, that's $7.4 trillion. God forbid we should ever cut that. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer uh, said uh, this is a good outcome. Uh, he's happy that uh, they were that they got that done. He said, with so many things to take care of in Washington, the last thing the American people need is for the government to grind to a halt. So once the government is then funded, if temporarily, Democrats can now turn their attention to the other three remaining imperatives on the legislative agenda, including raising the current artificial federal limit on borrowing. The U.S. has never defaulted on its debts in the modern era, and historically, both parties have voted to raise that limit. Democrats joined the Republican Senate majority in doing so three times during Trump's presidency. But uh, no, not anymore now that there's a Democrat in the White House. The Treasury has, meanwhile, taken steps to preserve cash, but once that runs out, as Yellen says, on October 18, we'll be forced to rely on incoming revenue only to pay for our obligations. That would mean delays in Social Security payments to uh, veteran and uh, gov government workers, uh, including, by the way, military personnel. The Bipartisan Policy Center, a think tank, projects that the federal government would be unable to meet about 40 percent of payments that are due in the several weeks that follow. But as noted, that'll likely be the least of the economic problems if Republicans force the nation off of that particular cliff. But hey, we can pretend we've got until uh, the night before October 18, I guess, at the moment mm. to worry about that. That Republican-induced chaos and calamity for now. Meanwhile, with President Joe Biden's Build Back Better expansion of very popular social services now at stake, along with the nation's first real effort to tackle climate change. Democrats confronted high stakes trouble on Thursday as a promised vote on the first piece. That's the slimmer public works bill as that faltered amid stalled talks on his more ambitious package. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has been meeting privately with factions of lawmakers throughout the day. And Biden cleared his schedule to work the phones. Democrats, pretty much all of them, with a few notable exceptions mentioned uh, by Colbert in his monologue earlier, they are reportedly determined to push ahead to somehow strike a deal over the larger $3.5 trillion effort and avoid what would be seen as a setback uh, if this smaller bill is not passed. I'm not sure that would be seen as a setback if the uh, if voting on this smaller uh, bricks and mortar public works bill fails or has to be scrapped, though AP describes it as a setback. The progressive caucus in Congress has made clear they intend to keep the original deal, the one that all of the Democrats made to pass both bills at once. And they say they will vote against the smaller bill. If it's the only thing that they get to vote on for the moment, that bipartisan infrastructure bill, which has already been passed in the Senate, that is the only one that is actually ready to go, ready to vote on. And while we don't know what's going to happen at this hour, 
a lot of things are moving quickly in D.C., or even if the bill is going to be put up for a vote on Thursday, as a tiny faction of Democratic moderates who broke the original coupling deal are now insisting that it that it does get put up for a vote. Well, if it does, and nobody is talking about this, I really don't understand why. But uh, if it does actually go up for a vote, Republicans, you know, they're, they're reportedly whipping against the bill, even though their Republican colleagues in the Senate hammered it out, hammered out this deal with Democrats. House Republicans could really, if they wanted to, they could really make life difficult for the Democrats if they voted in favor of that smaller bill. Yes, they could. And that would, you know, remove pretty much all of the leverage that the progressives and the bulk of the Democratic caucus have to hold the uh, smaller bill as leverage against the Democratic obstructionists, Manchin and Cinema. I don't know what I don't know why uh, nobody's talking about that out loud. Maybe I uh, so I guess I shouldn't say anything. Don't <laughs> don't tell House Republicans. Well, that would also then give Democrats a win of sorts, win in air quotes. <laughs> yeah, give Democrats a win. Yeah, they uh, would actually pass something. Oh well, yeah, but it it would look to the, uh, yeah, to the American public like, oh, they passed something. Yeah, they passed something. They passed a bunch of privatized uh, infrastructure money. Yeah, that's not going to work in 2020. We'll says see. me. Yeah, says me. Dems are deeply at odds as uh, progressive lawmakers threaten to withhold their votes on the roads and bridges infrastructure bill that they view as insufficient unless it is paired with Biden's broader vision uh, in the narrowly controlled House. Pelosi has pretty much zero votes to spare. She said on Thursday, this is the path. It's not a fork in the road. This is the fun part. <laughs> really? Fun for who, Madam Speaker? Uh, at the White House, the uh, press secretary, Jen Psaki, said that Biden was making calls. She acknowledged the process looks messy from the outside. Yeah. So while we don't know what's going to happen with the uh, smaller bill at this hour, there were some new developments finally on the larger $3.5 trillion proposal that, again, largely the entirety of the Democratic caucus supports, but for Manchin and Cinema in the Senate and uh, less than 10 Democrats in the House. But Manchin and Cinema have largely refused to explain, at least publicly, why they oppose this bill or what their demands are, which makes it very difficult, if not impossible, to negotiate with them. Cinema has been the worst, saying she would not even explain her objections until after the smaller bill that she helped put together in the Senate with Republicans until that has been approved by the House. She is a terrible person. Just want to mention that on record. Terrible. But Manchin and Cinema, both Democrats have expressed concern that the overall size of Biden's plan is just too large, even though Biden says it's completely paid for by small tax increases on corporations and the wealthy. But while they, uh, Manchin and Cinema view it, at, or Cinnamon, <laughs> uh, view it as too big, they have infuriated colleagues by not making any counter-proposals public. Finally, on Thursday, Joe Manchin called an impromptu press conference outside the Capitol, insisting that he has been clear from the start that his top line is $1.5 trillion. Not 3.5, but 1.5 trillion. 
when in fact he has repeatedly given mixed signals about what he could or couldn't support. He said, I'm willing to sit down and work on the 1.5, he told reporters, as protesters seeking a much bigger package and Biden's priorities chanted behind him. Here's a little bit of audio from that media scrum in front of the Capitol with Joe Biden on Thursday. I'm willing to sit down and work through that 1.5 to get our bar priorities, and they can come back and do later, and they can run on the rest of it later. I think there's many ways to get to where they want to, just not in everything at one time. Has no, no, my, my top line has not been. My top line has been 1.5 because I believe in my heart that what we can do and what the needs we have right now and what we can afford to do without basically changing our whole society to an entitlement mentality. We're doing good faith. I'm, I'm trying to be as honest and upfront as I possible. You said you talked to Joe Biden. You said you talked to Joe Biden about the $1.5 trillion number. We talked to him. What did he say about that? And he really is sincere. He would like to have a lot more than that. And I said, Mr. President, I understand that. It's just, you know, hopefully you can respect. And he's always been so respectful. He said, hey, Joe, I never asked you to go against your convictions. So at least Joe Manchin now is talking about publicly and answering questions from the public, from reporters about what he wants. I realize that's a pretty low bar, but in comparison <laughs> to Kirsten Cinema, who did I mention is a terrible person? Mm-hmm. At least Manchin is talking about it. At least he's open about it. He can't. Uh, he says he, you know, can't support a, a social safety net bill larger than 1.5 trillion, which is a fairly random number for no actual good reason. It's less than half the size of the package that Biden and the Democrats have been trying to push through Congress. But at least now we have some idea what we're working with. The New York Times reports that his comments were the most forthcoming about his willingness to support the social policy plan and about his limits on that support for the bill, which can be passed in the Senate without any Republican support as long as uh, and without a filibuster, as long as all 50 Senate Democrats are on board. Now, there is apparently a memo and it's titled An Agreement to Start Budget Resolution that was written by Joe Manchin and signed with Majority Leader Chuck Schumer that was published today, obtained and published by Politico. It said that uh, Mr. Manchin, quote, does not agree that he will vote for the final reconciliation legislation if it exceeds the conditions outlined in this agreement. In addition to uh, its $1.5 trillion top line, this agreement, this memo, also stipulated a number of demands to help the fossil fuel industry. It said that in his role as chair of the Senate Energy Committee, he must have full control over crafting the central climate change provisions of the legislation. He is the chair of the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee, and he wants control over the climate change aspects of this bill. Of course he does. That's pretty scary. It is, and, you know, he should not be in sole control. His committee should not be in sole control of it because then he would determine what gets passed out of that committee into the reconciliation bill. And because his family is heavily invested in coal. He makes millions of dollars off of coal. He is going to
trying to do whatever he can to prop up coal and fossil fuels in any kind of energy legislation that should come out, which is, you know, really dangerous for climate policy and the U.S. meaning its commitments under the Paris Climate Agreement. Yes, because uh, at the center of this Build Back Better bill is what's called the Clean Energy Performance Program, which basically gives incentives to power companies, to utility companies, to move to clean energy, gives them big financial incentives for doing so, and dings them with penalties, financial penalties, for not doing so. That is what is at stake of being gutted if Joe Manchin has his way. Now, Joe Manchin is at least willing, it seems, to negotiate, I think. He understands how the Senate works, Kirsten Cinema. Don't know what she is doing at all. Schumer uh, signed this uh, agreement again. This is to just to start uh, negotiations. It was signed back at the in late July, uh, and he scrawled at the bottom under his signature. He said, "Quote: I will try to dissuade Joe on many of these issues." Underneath his signature. As the document notes, Schumer never agreed to uh, any of the conditions that Senator Manchin laid out, said his uh, spokesperson, uh, Justin Goodman. He merely acknowledged where Senator Manchin was on the subject at the time. But hey, at least we have a better idea of where Manchin is, which is more than we can say about cinema. The only other Senate holdout uh, who said on Thursday that she would not, quote, negotiate through the press, though whether she's negotiating with anyone right now other than her corporate funders remains unclear and a huge point of contention for the rest of the Democratic caucus. We'll try to uh, go through more of that uh, that brief uh, mansion memo to get some sense of where he is in the future, but basically... Looks like he's going to be a huge block on moving to clean energy, at least unless dirty fossil fuels gets the same attention. Yes. All right. Quick break. And we are back with uh, a bit more on this from another perspective, from the wingnut perspective and the perspective of those folks who are trying to lie to you and confuse you about all of this instead of help you to understand it. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Uh-huh. I see what you did there. <laughs> Cinnamon Girl, right? Yep. There you go. Welcome back Cinnamon. to the Brad. Yeah. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Uh, you know, so why do we go, why, oh, why do we do this to you? Why do we go into so much detail sometimes on these things? Well, frankly, it's because there is so much bad reporting out there and, frankly, so much misinformation being circulated by so many, especially via social media that I think it's become more important than ever that you actually understand these things. Because guess what? You need to be the media at this point. You need to respond 
to the misinformation that is being sent to you by your friends and family on Facebook and on Twitter. You need to understand what is going on because there's a lot of bad guys out there who uh, do real well when you don't actually know what is what and what is going on. There's a lot of people who are able to exploit that. And frankly, it's killing our country. So anyway, that's one of the reasons why I think you need to. And and I'm sorry if we go into great detail too much, but I think it's important. For example, when it comes to Biden's Build Back Better program, it's not just, you know, crazy MAGA wingnuts uh, out there on uh, Facebook who are lying to you about it. It is actual Republican senators who absolutely know better. And they are out there lying to their constituents about all of this on social media. They're just blatantly lying. As our friend John Amato over at Crooks and Liars points out today, uh, many of the problems in the Republican Party can be attributed to their uneducated, unserious, unsophisticated, and uncurious representatives that do nothing to help their constituents and only speak in QAnon tongues instead of actually trying to learn something about how governments and economic systems work. Senator Marco Rubio of Florida tried to own the libs with this ludicrous tweet today. Quote, the $3.5 trillion Biden plan isn't socialism, it's Marxism. Marxism. Mm -hmm. Really, Senator? The great Paul Krugman had this response, quote, Ah, yes, remember that stirring line in the Communist Manifesto, workers of the world unite to spend 1.2% of GDP on popular programs over the next decade. Yes, we all remember that. John notes that a simple Google search could have educated the apparently simple-minded senator from Florida on the differences between capitalism, socialism, Marxism, communism, but instead he parroted MAGA nonsense. Of course, because he knows the difference, he just doesn't care. Biden's $3.5 trillion spending proposal gives most Americans actual help and free education to live their lives and raise their families. Using the federal government to aid the working class is now considered to be Marxism, asked John. Republicans have only done the bidding of corporations and the very wealthy for far too long. Having the federal government work for everyone in the U.S. scares the bejesus out of Republicans because they know how popular many of the provisions in the Build Back Better agenda are. And the fact that we've got a bill of this size with a serious chance of being passed in almost any form that actually helps working class Americans and families for a change, as opposed to giant corporations, well, that is freaking Republicans out. And it's freaking out Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema as well, apparently. As John notes, uh, even in red state West Virginia, Biden's $3.5 trillion spending proposal is immensely popular. Yeah, and obviously Rubio does know the difference between all of these things. But, you know, the scare word socialism doesn't pack enough of a punch anymore. So maybe they're going to switch to Marxism to really communism, Marxism. Yeah, that's what they used against BLM. Remember, they were all they were all communists. Anyway. One more here, Des, before we get to your Green News report, and this is sort of related. There is a uh, AP does some fact checking on the claim that um, President Biden has called for a driving tax that's estimated to be eight cents per mile. Well, that sounds bad. 
Just like Marxism. I don't know. <laughs> Anyway, social media users are misrepresenting the uh, massive. Uh, this is the 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 one trillion dollar infrastructure bill. This is the smaller one. This is the bipartisan uh, bill, and uh, they've misrepresented it to make these ridiculous claims. An image repeatedly shared on Facebook shows a screenshot of a Newsmax report on quote Biden tax increases. I'm scared already. That refers to a, quote, driving tax. Yes, you're going to be taxed just for driving. The screenshot shows bullets saying uh, per mile user fee estimated to be eight cents per mile and amounts vary depending on vehicles. Text above the screenshot adds the, uh, quote, just to put this in perspective, if you drive 26,000 miles times eight cents a mile, that's $2,080. Now get mad. It adds. So they needed to add the now get mad part. Yeah, that part you would think they would. uh, That would that's a given. Anyway, uh, the Biden administration, uh, AP notes, has not proposed such a mileage tax as the image falsely suggests. What has been proposed is a pilot program that would study the mechanics of such a tax, according to Andy Winkler, the director of infrastructure projects at the Bipartisan Policy Center. It is not a tax, he says, and it is voluntary, a voluntary pilot program. The idea, he said, is that volunteers with passenger and commercial vehicles across the country would participate in this program that would provide Insights into how such a per-mile fee of some sort could be collected. Maybe, someday, eventually, somehow. This type of a tax has been weighed as a potential replacement for the gas tax, he said. It's a study. It is not a tax. And, by the way, if it ever became a tax, it would replace the tax that you are already paying. On every gallon of gas that you buy. Likewise, Ulrich Boson, a senior policy analyst at the Tax Foundation, said in an email, the, uh, quote, purpose of this program is to study vehicle miles traveled, taxes, to understand how they could work. The proposal for the pilot program, AP points out, also does not include an eight cent per mile rate or any rate for that matter. Says That's just Posen. made up. Made it up. Newsmax made it up. An inquiry to Newsmax about its report was not immediately returned. There's there's a shocker for you. Yeah. Being asked to explain their fake reporting. No wonder they're being sued for one point three billion dollars by Dominion Voting Systems for their false reporting on them. Uh, AP's assessment here. False. The administration has not proposed that tax. A provision in Biden's one trillion dollar infrastructure bill before Congress would establish a national study to assess how such a tax could be implemented. It would not actually enact that tax, nor does it outline a rate of eight cents per mile. So there's a whole bunch of people being lied to out there and they're all believing it and they're all believing it is. uh, How did uh, Newsmax describe it? Biden tax increases. Biden tax increases, by the way, 
even if this were true, it would be in a bill that was a bipartisan bill that was worked out by Republicans and Democrats alike in the U.S. Senate. Yes, but right-wing media is lying about it and spreading it on social media, spreading disinformation and propaganda on social media. Now, that said, as we're moving to electric cars, There's and we a good are reason moving to study this. Uh, very quickly, yeah, there is good reason to study alternate ways to uh, collect taxes to, you know, pay for things like roads and bridges and highways, which is what the highway, which what the gas tax currently goes to. Correct. So when we move to electric vehicles and people don't buy as much gas, how are we going to fund our roads and bridges and highways and freeways that we all use? And so it's one Marxism. That's how <laughs> it's one way clearly, to look at it. Yeah, well, you uh, they have to figure out, you know, what to do, because that's a whole lot of money that comes from yeah. the gas tax. And frankly, as we open the show discussing, and I think we're going to sort of close as well, uh, we need to stop buying gas. Yeah. And we need to do it real damn quickly. So figuring this out is a good thing. Yeah. But, you know, there is nothing that these wingnut right wing outlet outlets are not willing to lie about to uh, their to their viewers and their listeners. There's nothing that these wingnut elected officials like Senator Marco Rubio are not willing to lie about to his own constituents. Because this is all they got. Lies, chaos, calamity. And yes, attempted stolen elections. All right, quick break, and we're back with Desi Doyen and the delightful Green News Report right after this. I'm Brad Friedman, and you are listening to the Bradcast. You're listening to the Bradcast. We are 100% listener-supported, thanks to listeners like you who drop by bradblog.com slash donate. So, Desi Doyen, in our previous Green News report, we talked about Pacific Gas and Electric PG&E, the largest utility company in California, being charged, indicted with, what, something like 11 felonies, including four charges of manslaughter? Yes. For failing to maintain their equipment, leading to huge fires, which uh, killed a whole bunch of people in California. And it was not even the first time that PG&E was charged with manslaughter. Correct. They've killed a lot of people in their time. Yes, they have. And uh, these utility companies in California, but really everywhere, but certainly in California, are terrible as I think we lead in our latest Green News Report. The only way that Semper or any other utility understands anything is in the pocketbook. Gas company agrees to nearly $2 billion settlement in largest methane leak in U.S. history. 23 U.S. species coming off the endangered list because they're now officially extinct. Plus... Now Ford is going all in on electric, pledging that within nine years, 40% of its fleet will be battery powered. Ford makes an $11 billion bet on electric vehicles. All of those good bets and more straight ahead from bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. When we meet the threat of the challenging climate we're all feeling, already ravaging every part of our world? Or will we suffer the merciless march of ever-worsening droughts and floods, more intense fires and hurricanes, 
longer heat waves, and rising seas. Yeah, that last one. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Tessie Doyen, finally justice for those folks in Porter Ranch outside of Los Angeles, a town that really stunk for quite a while. Yes, it did. Utility SoCal Gas and its parent company, Sempra Energy, have agreed to pay up to $1.8 billion as part of a settlement agreement in the Aliso Canyon gas leak of 2015, the largest known release of methane in U.S. history caused by a blowout at an underground gas storage facility. The companies did not admit fault. They never do. But did eventually acknowledge numerous failures including failure to inspect key equipment. The four-month-long methane leak sickened residents, closed schools, and forced the evacuation of more than 8,000 people. The L.A. Times editorial board noted that the settlement cannot undo the long-term damage to the climate from methane, a powerful greenhouse gas. The leak was equivalent to burning more than a billion gallons of gasoline. Wow. In other news, as Congress debates passage of President Biden's climate agenda in his Build Back Better plan, a new poll by Yale Climate Communications shows a dramatic increase in Americans' concern over the impacts of climate change. An all-time record 70 percent of Americans are now very or somewhat worried about global warming. The percentage of those very worried increased 10 points just since the last survey six months ago. And the increased concern ranged across all political groups, including a 10% boost from moderate Republicans. There are no moderate Republicans. And for the first time, a majority of Americans, 55%, agreed that climate change is harming people in the United States right now. Only 55%. Yep. What planet do they live on? The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service announced that 22 animals and one plant in the United States will be removed from the endangered species list and declared extinct, including eight bird species in Hawaii. Mm. It's due primarily to habitat loss from human development, hunting, and the multiple cascading effects of man-made climate change. Meanwhile, the Biden administration has finalized a rule that revokes the Trump administration's rollbacks of protections for birds, which Trump had weakened at the request of the oil and gas industry. And the Interior Department has also withdrawn a Trump administration rule that resulted in vastly reduced royalty rates for oil, gas and coal extraction from the public's lands. They better hurry up reversing all of that Donald Trump stuff before he becomes president again. The Biden administration this week will begin phasing in new rates for federal flood insurance, requiring beachfront homeowners to gradually begin paying something closer to the actual cost of their actual individual flood risk. The shift to rates that reflect actual flood risk is intended to end the repetitive cycle of taxpayers spending millions to subsidize the repair and rebuilding of such homes over and over again. And that, in turn, is is likely to change where coastal development occurs as rising seas and extreme weather disasters increase due to man-made climate change. Hey, people who live near beaches, 
Now's a really good time to sell that house. Finally, some big good news. Ford Motor Company announced this week that it will invest more than $11 billion to build four new factories in the United States in its push to shift to electric vehicles. Three battery factories and an electric truck plant in Tennessee and Kentucky, hiring 11,000 new workers and building what the company pledges will be carbon-neutral facilities. Henry Ford's great-grandson, Chairman Bill Ford acknowledged that it is a major risk for the venerable company. It's a bet that I'd make any day of the week because electrification is coming, the battery industry is coming to America, and we just want to be at the forefront of it. What would your great-grandfather say today about your new Model T for the 21st century? I think he'd say what took you so long. No kidding. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. It's a girl, my lord, in a flatbed board, slowing down to take a look at me. So take it easy. Yeah, take it easy. <laughs> Everything's fine. Uh, by the way, you know, though we laud Ford uh, Motors for moving big time towards electric cars. And we should, we because it is a big deal. But as you mentioned, they, they think they're only going to, they'll be up to 40% electric cars in 10 years. I think it'll be a lot more, a lot sooner, but we will see. Probably, yes. But uh, a lot of people say, oh, that's not nearly enough. Don't laud those uh, car companies. <laughs> well, it is not enough. That's the important thing. But you have to start somewhere. But yeah, the, the, the critics are basically saying that... Uh, Ford's target to shift to all electric mm-hmm. by 2035 or so gives them at least another decade or so to te- to sell millions of gas-guzzling, polluting SUVs and trucks. And that's a problem, but hopefully the market signals will move it fast enough. we got to start somewhere. Uh, they are starting on their own, really without government mandates to do it. They're just starting it. As soon as we add some mandates, maybe it'll be a lot quicker. That's kind of where we started this program today, saying we got to move a lot quicker, a lot faster. Um, but we're hey, trying to get the government mandates in place in the Build Back Better Act to do that. But we're starting somewhere. So, yes. yes Take it easy. All right, got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doy, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. We hope you enjoyed it more than we did. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. And while you're there, please hit a donate button or uh, just stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves. You can drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. That is it. Until we meet again, I'll see you there. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Hey.